The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. I have the honor today of welcoming Dr. Sandra Steingraber. Dr. Steingraber is an ecologist, an author, and a cancer survivor. Dr. Steingraber, first of all, welcome. It's an honor to have you here. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. I have to say that you you suffered from cancer at a very young age, when you were 20 years old, from a cancer that was also seen in your family. There were other cancers in your family. And when you'd sit down and, and talk to doctors about it, they'd nod until you said, oh, and by the way, I'm adopted. <laughs> that was a fun game for me to play for a while. <laughs> right, right. I especially liked the part where I would describe in detail about how my aunt died of the exact same kind of cancer that I had, transitional cell can- carcinoma of the bladder. And there would be all this nods, and then I'd have mentioned that I was adopted, and the nods would turn into this kind of blinking, right? Right. It didn't compute. I read an interview that you did in The Sun, the January 2010 issue, and in that interview you said something very important, and it's a lesson that I've had to learn as well, and that is you say you think of cancer factors as a triangle. The inherited predispositions are on the one side, lifestyle is on the other, and the environment is on the third. And yet, as you were describing the brochures that you would read in the patient, you know, the waiting room, we're not talking about the environment enough. We're not, and that's the, 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 you know, the side of the triangle that's still in the shadows, I think. And uh, the majority of the spotlight is kind of focused on our inherited genes and our so-called lifestyle. And uh, the importance of the environment was recently highlighted by the president's own cancer panel. Uh, it just released last month uh, a report based on years of study and concluded that the environment plays a much bigger role in the story of human cancer than has been previously appreciated and urged the president uh, to use the power of his office to remove carcinogens from air, food, and and water. It was a very powerful report. So I do think uh, with that report, uh, Canada just released its own report, the Canadian Cancer Society, uh, their version of the American Cancer Society, came to the same conclusion. So I do think that the spotlight is now finally being trained on the role of the environment. And I'm very pleased about that because I think that offers us a real place to begin a program of meaningful cancer prevention. Absolutely. And in fact, I had that on my list of questions to ask you. I was very pleased as well to see the President's Cancer Report. And if anyone's interested in that, it's a very simple Google search simply on President's Cancer Report. And there was an emphasis on, I'm happy to say, food that would be grown without harmful pesticides. I have to sit back, however, and wonder just how much of an influence this report will have, because unfortunately, I I used to like to hope that science would drive policy. And what I've learned in my years and my my own profession as a dietitian is that it's really not science, it's really money. And I don't know how to solve that problem. Well, I think that money and science are all in the mix, certainly. Uh, And it it, it is not clear to me whether the President's Cancer Panel Report, the recommendations, which include 
pesticide-free food. I'm not, I'm not, it's not at all clear whether the, those recommendations will be implemented. I, I did, because of the, the book that I wrote that comes to the same conclusion, uh, Living Downstream, just came out as a second edition and also as a documentary film just about the same time the President's Cancer Panel came out. I was invited to brief Congress on the re- uh, results of the report, so I did a con- congressional briefing to staff both the Senate and the House side, in late May, and then met with uh, White House staff to also discuss the report. And there was a packed room for the congressional briefing and uh, standing room only, a lot of excitement and interest and questions. But that's not the response we got from the White House. I think that it was looked at very skeptically. So we have a lot of work to do. I also think that unless you offer people alternatives to the same old toxic way of doing things, it's very difficult psychology for people to hear the evidence for harm, uh, especially when the chemicals involved are common ones and and people feel like they, they can't, through their own individual actions, opt out of exposure. There's a great need when when chemicals are familiar and, and exposures are ubiquitous. There's a great need to downplay and discount the evidence because otherwise people just feel helpless. So sometimes the best public education is to let policy lead. Let, let's let let the laws be changed, get rid of the exposures, and then people can take a look at the evidence and, and, and look at it more clearly. I mean, for example, no one's really questioning the evidence now that DDT is linked to human health problems but before it was banned, of course, it was very hard for people to see to see that. Whereas we have more evidence now for harm due to exposure to another pesticide called atrazine, which is one of our most common pesticides. We have more evidence for that than we did for uh, you know damning evidence for DDT in the 1970s, and yet we haven't abolished atrazine. And it's very hard for people to, you know, people are very much more ready to accept the evidence for DDT. Um, which they're not exposed to anymore directly anyway, and they're not and they're less likely to accept the evidence for atrazine. That that's not a difference of science, that's a difference of um psychology, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. Speaking of atrazine, I, I like to follow the agricultural news services and there was one, the Brownfield News Service. And there was a front page story. Literally the headline was celebrating fifty years of atrazine. Oh, yes, I know the one, yeah. Yeah, and I actually commented online about some of the science that had disproven why, you know, why we shouldn't be celebrating. But many of the farmers or the farming community receives so much literature from the agricultural chemical companies that is very convincing that we can't possibly grow food without these substances. And yet, I really like the way you approached that topic in your book, Living Downstream, you approached it from the two arguments that are often given to us when we say, no, we've got to move away from these harmful chemicals. You approached it from a yield standpoint, and you approached it from a price standpoint. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. I, I think that you know a lot of the critique of organic agriculture is is kind of outdated, actually, and and the and yet these arguments are repeated over and over again. And one of one of the kind of common arguments I hear a lot is that we can't go, embrace organic agriculture because um, you know people will starve to death. We we have to keep boosting yield because it's a, you know we have a growing population. And so if you take a look at the data, that that, that argument may have had 
some merit to it uh, when I was a kid, um, you know, in the 1960s or 70s. But in fact, organic agriculture is not uh, is not practiced in the same way my great grandfather farmed. Um, and it's it also has evolved. And although the research and development dollars are are not matched by chemical agriculture, um, we know a lot more than we used to about how to control pests using biological pest control methods rather than um, chemical ones. And so at this point, both the evidence in the United States and Europe show that yields for farmers are on par with conventional ag or or very close to on par. Uh, And moreover, organic fields in times of unpredictable weather which, of course, with climate change, we're going to be getting more and more of. Um, the, the organic farms actually outperform conventional farms because the soil is is healthier, and therefore it can retain more moisture in times of drought. Um, it doesn't get so uh, it doesn't r- erode so much in times of flooding and so forth. Uh, and so, over the long haul, then uh, organic agriculture is competitive and offers high yields and high profits to farmers and leaves the soil in, in better shape. So it's not this terrible choice of, you know, either not using the chemicals or somehow all of us starving. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the first thing. And then the price issue is one I look at very autobiographically, actually, because, you know, I'm a mother of two children as well. I became a mother at 40 after being a cancer patient on the brink of uh, 20. And so, uh, no, that's not the order that usually people live their lives, but... That's how mine worked out, and I'm married to uh, my children's art teacher. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> uh, wonderful. Also, their father, so he <laughs> teaches art at the co- at school where they attend. So you can imagine, and I'm a self-employed writer, that we live very frugally and uh, watch all of our dollars, and yet I still do- devote all of my uh, grocery money to organic. I buy all organic for, for my family, and it is more expensive. There's no doubt about that. Now, when you look at it from a cultural point of view and a whole kind of a larger macroeconomic point of view, it's not at all clear that that organic is more expensive because, in fact, a lot of the cost of conventional agriculture is not reflected in the price that goes through uh, the cash register. And these are externalized costs such as dead bees and contaminated groundwater that has to be cleaned up by utilities, uh, soil erosion, dead birds, unfishable streams, um, pediatric cancers. You know, uh, farmers' children have higher rates of cancer than non-farmers' children, and farmers have higher rates of certain kind of tumors as well. And so organic food begins to look like a bargain when you look at it that way. But still, as an individual person buying food for a family of four, it's it's a huge commitment. And there are ways in which I've been able to make it affordable for us and I write about some of those things. Um, and one of my tricks is to belong to a, a farm of, I'm a shareholder in a farm, a, a, a CSA, Community Supported Agricultural Farm. That's only a half mile from my house. And so I can ride my bike down there and uh, pick peas. In fact, I'm going to do that later today. And then, of course, you know, it involves putting them up uh, for the winter, either freezing them or canning. And so I've learned to do that and involve my children in, in doing that. And so there's ways of making it less expensive and affordable, I think. And, of course, as we all jump onto the local organic bandwagon, just the economy of scale is going to bring the prices down. So I see this as a decision that I've made in my family to direct my food dollars toward farmers who aren't broadcast spraying toxic and carcinogenic 
pesticides into the environment and threatening my air and my water and my kids' health. And and it, it offers a kind of object lesson to my kids, I think, that in fact um, food is what our body is made of, and it's worth it's worth having a, high, a premium good food. You know, mm-hmm. food uh, we don't necessarily buy. We wouldn't buy the cheapest car because it wouldn't be safe. You know, nor do we buy the cheapest food. Exactly. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Sandra Steingraber. Dr. Steingraber is an author of several books. The latest is the second edition of Living Downstream. It's been made into a documentary film, and she's also a biologist and cancer survivor. Dr. Steingraber, I have to ask you about the precautionary principle because you write in your book that it guides your daily life. So I'd like for you, if you would, to describe the precautionary principle and then explain what you mean about how you use it to guide your life. There are a lot of different definitions of the precautionary principle. Uh, The one I like the best comes from England, in which uh, David Gee, uh, who's one of the leading proponents of this idea, describes it as the ability to prevent pipelines of unstoppable consequences from being constructed. And what he means by that is that sometimes when we have emerging evidence for harm, that at some point the harm becomes such that the outcome can't be stopped anymore. You're past some kind of tipping point, and you want to avoid that. And, uh, of course, what, where it gets tricky is when you don't have absolute proof, but you have pretty good evidence at, at some point, you need to take action because the danger is if you wait, then you can't go back and fix it. And I think the ongoing disaster in the Gulf of Mexico right now is an example of the failure to uh, use the precautionary principle because here we have a technique for extracting oil where if something goes wrong, there's no there's no obvious and good solution. Right. And so, of course, every parent practices the precautionary principle in their own home. And in my house, you can't um, ride your bike without your bike helmet on. And if you do, then your bike has to go in the barn for a week. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, when I we go swimming in the lake, if I even hear a distant rumble of thunder, I'm going to call my kids out of the lake. I don't need absolute proof that somebody's going to get struck by lightning. I just need to know that this is an inherently dangerous situation, and I take precautionary action. And I think that's our main job as parents is to keep our children safe from harm. So we're constantly, you know, scanning the horizon for dangers and trying to keep our kids away from them. Um, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and all that. So there are threats to my kids that I myself as an individual parent can't mitigate. I can't get the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons from the coal-burning power plant out of the air so that my son, who has cough variant asthma, uh, his respiratory health isn't made worse. And so here is where, you know, we need our government to also adopt the precautionary principle. Um, we may not know exactly whose child will benefit if we move away from fossil-based energy system and toward renewables, but we do know that the burden of cancers and respiratory health problems will be lowered. Some some child's life will be saved, and that gives us the moral imperative to, to move in that direction. Absolutely. I I really like your essays that have been posted on livingdownstream.com, and I 
recommend that our listeners go to that website because I think it is developing into a fabulous resource for anyone who cares about the environment. So you post uh, weekly essays or thereabouts, and this one is called Escape from the Heartland, uh, Atrazine, Susan G. Komen, and KFC. And for our listeners who don't realize, uh, the Susan G. Komen Foundation raises money to fight breast cancer, and they partnered with KFC, which used to be Kentucky Fried Chicken, to raise money, um, as strange as that may seem. But what I really like about this essay, in addition to your, your way of writing, is that you start out with a quote. And this particular quote is so powerful. It says, silence gives consent. And it's actually a 13th century Roman Catholic canon law. And I think that certainly what you are doing is speaking out. But I wish that more of us felt empowered to do so. Well, thank you. And I guess I should say that those essays appear first on Huffington Post. So I write a weekly essay for Huffington Post, and then 24 hours later, they automatically appear on livingdownstream.com. So anyone who wants to receive them more easily without having to think about them can just subscribe to the RSS feed that Huffington Post provides, and you can get them directly. And they do, you're right, they, they write one a week, and they, they open with a quote, and then I explore some, well, the kind of theme of the whole series is called The Environment Within, and so they explore some intersection between health and the environment. And that particular one, it, it takes a slightly more confrontational tone than some of the others and calls to task Coben for the Cure, I think they now call themselves, for partnering with a company that sells deep-fried fat to people. And I don't think we should be trying to raise money for breast cancer by encouraging people to eat the kind of food that actually is linked to breast and other cancers. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, my daughter, who's 11, had the most insightful comment when she heard about these pink buckets with the pictures of women victims of breast cancer on the side that you're supposed to buy the bucket of uh, deep-fried chicken breast to, to fight breast cancer. She said... <laughs> So if you buy the bucket and eat the chicken, you get to have your picture on the side of the bucket because you get breast cancer. <laughs> you know, sort of out of the mouth of babes. Right. A yeah. wise observation on her yeah. part. Yeah. Well, the, of course, my connection with Susan G. Common is that she and I grew up in the same town. Exactly. We're both from Peoria, Illinois. We grew up drinking in the same, out of the same aquifer, the San Cody Aquifer. Her sister, Nancy Brinker founded the organization, and according to the legend, when uh, Susan G. Komen died at, in 1980, she, on her deathbed, made her sister promise that she would end the breast cancer epidemic. Thus, uh, we have uh, Komen for the Cure. And the Komen Foundation does indeed sponsor research into the environmental causes of cancer, but they don't tell their, and, and these, some of this research has been published, and some of it has shown that there are common mammary gland carcinogens circulating in our air, food, and water. Uh, this was work uh, that the Silent Spring Institute did. And yet the Komen Foundation does not reveal uh, that uh, the results of those studies to the public and to its membership. It's as though it's soundproofed away in the technical literature, um, but they don't feel that um, their members should, should know about it. And so because there is so much atrazine used in Illinois, we are the bullseye state for atrazine, I invited in my one of my essays, the one you're referencing, uh, I invited uh, Susan G. Komen 
uh, leadership to come to Peoria, come back to the place where I and Susan G. Komen herself lived and, and have a, a debate about atrazine, uh, a, a, a pesticide that in animal studies has been shown to alter the development of the breast in such a way that it makes it more vulnerable to cancer. And um, because of findings like that, it's ban- banned for in the uh, European Union. So we in Peoria area and central Illinois in general are struggling um, with exposure to a possible breast carcinogen. And, and it seems to me that Susan G. Komen Foundation, Komen for the Cure, should be out front in having this conversation. So I've, I, it's an open challenge and open invitation for me to them to, to, to do this, and I will meet them in Peoria anytime they want to come there and have this conversation. You know, in having conversations about the environmental issues and the links to disease, I spoke to a gentleman at the Colorado Department of Health not long ago. He said, you know, not only is it hard to pinpoint the smoking guns, but when you do, it's awfully hard to hold them accountable. Is that what you found as well? Sometimes, yes. Yes, I do. Although it depends on, you know, who you're talking to, I think. There are people who find it... uh, are more willing to look at the data than others. It's Mm -hmm. always interesting to me, since I do a lot of public speaking, to lay out the argument for harm for certain chemicals and give kind of the exact same talk with the exact same data in certain communities. And I see people nodding and asking questions and their hearts and minds are open. And in other um, communities, uh, you know, the, the walls, just go down. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. They're usually tied to some sort of financial interest, I, I find. I not, not always. So, you know, I think there is this um, kind of people don't want to feel helpless. There's a big psychology yes. to this. And so even if they have no financial ties in this, if they feel like they can't, you know, they can't buy bottled air. So if I'm going to talk to them about, these microfine particles in air and coal-burning power plants or the mercury that comes out of coal-burning power plants and is infecting the fish, then I, the only thing that they can do is give up eating fish. You know, it's, and they don't want to do that. And why should they do that? So it becomes very hard to really keep, to just hold that evidence and look at it objectively. Right now in upstate New York, we're in the fight for our lives against drilling for gas in shale, which is is a very unconventional kind of drilling. I don't even think drilling is the right word for what they do. It's called slick water hydrofracking, and it involves drilling sideways through a layer of bedrock, exploding it, and then pumping the rubble full of toxic chemicals, which are some are biocides, uh, some are um, surfactants and things that make the water slick to hold the cracks open so the bubbles of methane uh, in, the, in the bedrock can flow up a pipe. And, and then, of course, all those uh, toxic chemicals are left down there under the ground. And so there's lots of money to be made, and people are, you know, leasing to, to gas companies. And then there's this evidence that it, it may contaminate our water. Uh, it certainly, even without an accident, will contaminate our air because it requires a thousand different tanker trucks for every well. So all these diesel trucks are, you know, will will fill the roads. This is already going on in Pennsylvania, but we haven't started doing it yet in in New York. And so there are some people who see that this is just inevitable, and so turn their faces away for, from the evidence for harm. And then there are others who take a look at the evidence and feel, you know, their hearts are just 
lit on fire with wanting immediately to move toward wind and solar power as a way of, of not needing to drill the earth for the last wisp of, of fossil fuel. And um, it's really interesting to see that kind of psychology play out for people. I do think that fatalism is is the hardest battle to fight. It's harder than industry opposition because I can argue on the basis of evidence and research, um, but if somebody has already given up before they've even fought because they just feel like it's too late or there's nothing they can imagine doing that's sufficient for the cause, it's a kind of conformity that I really can't fight against. I, I so understand. I think that's an excellent an excellent point. I Unfortunately, our time is up, and I wanted to refer people absolutely, without a doubt, to Living Downstream, second edition. It is fantastic. It is a resource as well as a compelling story. And I want every, this is the everyone's homework assignment who has children, to go to page 289 in your afterword where your children ask you what they should do with their lives. And you have this wonderful response. You tell them, I believe we are musicians in human orchestra. It is time now to play the Save the World Symphony. We need all hands on deck. And I want to thank you very much for your work, your tenacity, your insights. And I, I, I want you to stay healthy because the world so desperately needs you. Well, thank you, and you're welcome. And listeners, I want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you are wondering about the uh, person we've been talking to, this is Dr. Sandra Steingraber, and she is the author of Living Downstream, and that is a new documentary film which you won't want to miss. Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, and thank you again, Dr. Steingraber. My pleasure. Thank you.